Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Jerry Coyne will join us to discuss why evolution is true. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the theory of evolution is perhaps the single most important concept in the biological sciences, with its explanatory power supported by overwhelming evidence from a number of fields. Yet, despite this, there continues to be an ongoing debate, and confusion still abounds about just exactly what evolution entails. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Jerry Coyne. Professor Coyne is the renowned evolutionary biologist whose work has appeared in numerous scientific articles and popular works on the subject. He is currently a professor here at the University of Chicago in the Department of Ecology and Evolution, and his newest book, Why Evolution is True, explores the theory of evolution for a general audience. Professor Coyne, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Good to be here. Well, it's really our pleasure. It really is a very fascinating book, Why Evolution is True. Well, thanks. But I'm curious. You mentioned in other articles, it's been almost 150 years since Darwin published on the origin of species, and there's all this evidence supporting evolution. Why do you think a debate still exists about evolution? Well, there's really only one reason. As you said, there's so much evidence for evolution, at least as much evidence as that the Earth goes around the sun. Um, there's no scientific reason to doubt it. The reason that people go after it is, well, for two reasons. Um, the overriding one is that it attacks their sense of self, their importance in the world as a species, and that connects with the second reason, which is basically religion. Religion, particularly of the fundamentalist or revelatory type, tells us that humans are the special product of God's intervention in nature and that we're like the supreme animal. And evolution tells us the exact opposite, that we're the product of random and blind forces, just like squirrels or trees or anything like that. And so it attacks our sort of specialness as humans. And people don't like that very much um, for a number of reasons. Um, they're solipsistic reasons, but also they think that it may rob them of ethics and morality if they're just a product of natural selection. And really, this is the reason why things like intelligent design and creation science have pushed into science classroom. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's pure religion. I've only met, I think, in all the hundreds and hundreds of creationists I've met in my life, only one of them has not been a religious person. So it's intimately connected with religion. And as the courts have ruled repeatedly, idea and creationism cannot be taught in the schools because it's simply a disguised form of religion. It violates the First Amendment. Yeah, this still persists in this uh, argument that uh, you need to present a balanced view of things in the classroom. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the argument that the creationists have reverted to. It used to be that we want to teach our stuff about creation in the schools. The courts ruled that out. So now it's a balanced view. Actually, it's that we want to address the criticisms of evolution. And it sort of appeals to the American sense of fair play, that why not teach the kids 
all the going theories and let them sort it out themselves. But you have to think a little bit more deeply than that. It's equivalent to saying to medical students that you have to study Christian science and shamanism as well as Western medicine, and you can sort that out. Or you can teach psychology students astrology as an alternative theory of human behavior. Let the students sort it out. You know, teach flat earthism because there's a few flat earthers and teach the fact that the Holocaust might not have happened in history classes because there's a whole lot of Holocaust scenarios out there. Let the students sort it out. I mean, the fallacy of that is that we already have a received and well-accepted opinion that's supported by a lot of evidence, just as much evidence as the fact that the Holocaust happened. And there's simply no reason to confuse people by presenting an ill-founded alternative. Perhaps some of the confusion actually just exists because a lot of people might not have a very clear idea of just exactly what is evolution. Yeah, and that's the reason I wrote the book, actually. There is a segment of the populace that is either somewhat opposed to evolution because they don't know what it is or they're on the fence about it and they sort of don't want to go over to that side because they think it's attached to all these repellent ideas. I wrote the book because I hoped... And in fact, I know that there are some people out there that simply don't know the tremendous amount of evidence that exists supporting evolution, not just from fossils, but from all kinds of areas of biology. And I wanted to sort of put that together in an accessible, popular volume that was comprehensible to somebody who wasn't a biologist. Well, I, I think it certainly is that. Maybe we could attempt then an explanation of just exactly what is evolution. Well, it's more than one thing. I guess in the book I divide it up into five or six different aspects, some of which are interconnected, others not. The most important one is evolution, of course, that evolution happened. That is, the organisms living today are not the same ones that lived earlier, but they're the descendants of those. Second part is that the mechanism for that change is largely natural selection. So those are two different assertions. You can have evolution happening, but some other process than selection causing it. There's splitting of lineages that produces the great branching tree of life. So the original one species that was the ancestor of us all has branched into the 50 or 60 million on Earth today. And if you trace those twigs back, you get the idea of common ancestry, that is that Every pair of species, no matter how different, has a common ancestor somewhere in the past, so-called missing link, if you will. And finally, that the evolutionary change is gradual in, in the sense that it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over periods of hundreds, thousands, or millions of years. So all those things together form a sort of mixed pot. And we call it Darwinism, and actually those are all things that Darwin suggested. But evolution has moved on a long way since Darwin, so it's probably better to use the term modern evolutionary theory than Darwinism. All right. <laughs> So this is the modern evolutionary theory. What is the evidence supporting the modern evolutionary theory? Well, that's what my book is about. I mean, it would take me hours and hours to sit here. I'll just say that it's drawn from, I mean, the most important evidence, of course, comes from the fossil record, which clearly documents evolution, not only changes in a single lineage, but the finding of sort of missing links between major groups. Um, A prime example of that is Neil Shubin's work on Tiktaalik, which is sort of a missing link between fish and amphibians. It represents the very beginnings of terrestrial life coming out of the water onto land. That was predicted to be found, and Neil went there, the right rocks of the right age, and found it. And we're finding lots of connections between major groups like that. Um, we find dinosaurs with feathers. They're in the process of evolving into birds. So that, you know, I mean, that's documents evolution, but there's a lot of other evidence from, you know, uh, vestigial organs that we carry around in our bodies, like the appendix. The distribution of species on the planet only makes sense if you assume that they evolved. And, of course, there's the evidence for natural selection itself, which comes from observing selection operated in the wild. And we have several hundred cases of that now. So, I mean, I summarize it all in my book, so I won't bore people by making them listen to it now. (laughs) Well, of course, the intelligent design people, they try and tag all these elements in the geological record. They're always criticizing that there are gaps in the fossil record. Um, Well, 
those gaps get filled. I mean, one of the examples is Neil's Tiktaalik again. Mm -hmm. He, I mean, we have fish and we have amphibians, and there's a period in the middle where there wasn't anything. And you could predict, well, about this period a couple hundred million years ago, if we go into rocks of that age, if there was an ancestor of amphibians that was from a fish, we should be able to find something that looks halfway between a transitional form. And that's what he did and exactly what he found. So he filled the gap between fish and amphibians. So what do the creationists do? They say, well, now there's two gaps. There's one on either side of the new species. So it's a mugs game to do that. I mean, we have certainly a good fossil record enough to show that I mean, we don't need every single fossil that ever existed in order to show that we, for example, evolved from ape-like ancestors. We have a lot of fossils that document that. So increasingly, creationists are becoming more and more evolutionary in that they'll admit that some evolution has occurred, but they will never admit that the crucial evolutionary step of humans from apes occurred because that's the Bible says that didn't happen. And in fact, the mechanism that they might suggest for such an evolution is not the one that is commonly accepted by modern evolutionary theory, random mutations in the gene pool and then selection by natural selection. Well, they'll admit a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of, a, creationists span the whole gamut from young earth creationists that believe in the Bible literally. So God created everything. It's as it was 6,000 years ago. The earth is 6,000 years ago. And then there's much more sophisticated ones who accept some common ancestry, some actually random mutation and natural selection, but they draw the line at some things. And one of the things they draw the line at is that humans could not have evolved. So there's creationists of all stripes, and they like to pretend that they're all philosophically unified, but they're actually much more different from one another than evolutionists are. So... So in, in that respect, what is it, the evidence that humans are not really unique in this whole process? Well, first of all, we see the fossils. We find the earliest fossils on the human branch about 7 million years ago. And they're very ape-like, but they begin to have some human-like characteristics. They may have been bipedal, for example, walked on two legs. Our dentition, the shape of our teeth and our jaw is distinctly different from that of apes. So we start off very ape-like, but then you can trace the human fossils throughout. And we get, our brains get bigger, we walk more erect, our teeth become more and more rounded in terms of the shape of our palate, and they get smaller. And gradually we turn into homo sapiens. So clearly we began as apes, as something ape-like, and we evolved. So in that way, there's a continuum between us and the other animals. Now, in, in terms of our big brains, well, our big brains gave us this very special ability, but there's no evolutionary problem with evolving a big brain. So it's not like we have to suddenly say that, you know, God gave us this big brain because we can't understand how it evolved. You know, we can, so... Right. That's sort of a common argument is the argument from design that there's all these complexities that really can't be explained. Yeah, that's actually the crux of the creationist yeah. argument and the intelligent design argument yeah. that things are just so complicated that you can't envision a step-by-step -step <laughs> production of the character. But every single example that they cite, and the newest ones are biochemical, like the evolution of the blood clotting pathway or the immunology. Scientists have put together plausible pathways, beginning with precursor molecules that build up to that. That's called the argument from ignorance, that if you can't figure out how evolution did it, God must have done it, the default option. But, you know, that's a prescription for just not doing science at all. If you don't understand something, just throw up your hands, go to church, and stop working. And if that was true, if we followed that dictum, we'd never make any progress at all in science. And of course, widely popularized, there are evidences of bad design in nature, like the panda's thumb popularized by Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah, humans are loaded with, I call them, bad design. The way human females give birth is, I mean, no engineer would ever design this small aperture to, to produce a baby with a huge head, and a lot of women die in childbirth. Our appendix gets infected. It doesn't seem to do much good, but it kills, before surgery, it killed a lot of people. Wisdom teeth, um, dentists usually pull them out because they cause problems. But all of those make sense from an evolutionary point of view. 
We evolved from things that gave birth through the birth canal. The appendix is the remnant of a big digestive pouch that our ancestors used to digest leaves when they ate leaves. Everything that we have is a vestigial organ. It's just simply, and our wisdom teeth, of course, our jaw has gotten smaller than that of the apes, so it doesn't have room for the teeth anymore. They're still there, but they're going away. They have variable expression, but they're not going away fast enough. Mm-hmm. All of this testifies that if there was a designer, he botched the job in some respects. I think part of the problem, of course, is that a lot of people have trouble envisioning how organs and such systems could evolve. What is the mechanism of evolution, and how does it create these structures in nature? Well, it's natural selection, of course, for something that's adaptive or useful to the organism. And it's basically a step-by-step accretion of slight selective advantages. I mean, if you look at the eye, which is extremely complex, used to be cited by creationists as something that could not possibly have evolved. Darwin actually answered that argument in The Origin. You start off with a small, light-sensitive patch, like we have in flatworms or planaria, and then we cover it with a lens-like thing, and we have examples of that as well in some other kinds of worms. Then you invaginate it, and we have species in which there's a cup with a light-sensitive patch in it. And so you can go step-by-step, and you can actually see each step in a different living species. You can string them together and say, well, if this is good in each species, maybe they could have all occurred one by one in a single species, and that's how we get a complex eye. Mm -hmm. So there's really no difficulty in explaining these. It's just that humans have a limited imaginative capacity. Francis Crick used to say, evolution is cleverer than you are, (laughs) which is true. But certainly not clever for experimentalists who are actually able to do some directed evolution in the lab. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's experimental evidence for this as well. Oh, yeah, lots. I mean... I mean, there is directed evolution. There's people that actually watch evolution happen in the laboratory. People don't like that so much if they're trying to accept evolution because it's not quite as natural as going out into the wild and seeing an animal or plant in the forest undergo selection. But, you know, we have plenty of examples of those as well. Selection is actually the hardest thing to show. You can show evolution by the fossil record, but to actually understand what was going on and what the particular reproductive advantage of a given change is, is something that you usually have to speculate about. We weren't there when the dinosaurs turned into birds, so we can only imagine the advantages. But we can see this stuff occurring in living species as well, so it gives us confidence that selection is actually a very powerful force. You have a a chapter entitled, How Does Sex Drive Evolution? Mm -hmm. Why is it important? Well, it's important because, well, for that particular chapter, it's a kind of selection called sexual selection, which is a subset of natural selection, really. In this case, um, one sex selects on the other, and it's usually females selecting for males. The reason I have a separate chapter on that is it explains a lot of things about nature which don't make a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at the birds of paradise in New Guinea, these males have these ridiculous tails that are five feet long and these crests, and they go through these bizarre displays. They build weird nests. I mean, it doesn't seem to be to help their survival to do that. Darwin actually realized it may not help their survival, but it helps their mating. And the reason it helps their mating is because females have certain preferences for certain traits of males that may not help those males survive, but it certainly helps those males pass their genes on. And that's the name of the game in evolution. So a female might just be impressed by a long red crest. That will cause the males to develop these red crests. It's called sexual selection. And it explains why in so many species, including our own, um, males and females are different from one another. We're Males are bigger than females and humans. We're hairier. We have beards, lots of different things, different hormones. Um, that's undoubtedly the result of sexual selection operating in our ancestors millions of years ago. Of course, another issue regards to evolution is how do all the different species arise through this process of natural selection? Yeah, that's uh, actually I gave a lecture to my class on that. Anybody out there who's taken BioSci 20185 will know the answer to that. Um, That's what I work on myself. It's the process of speciation. And 
It involves simply isolated populations diverging from each other through natural selection to the point where they're no longer able to exchange their genes. And that's sort of the definition of what a species is. It's an entity that cannot exchange genes with another entity. So we're different species from chimps because we can mate with them, but we're not going to have any offspring. That experiment has been tried and failed. So it's the origin of those reproductive barriers. And we understand a lot about it, but there's still a lot more to figure out. And that's part of the work I do in my laboratory. So. And some examples of those types of barriers are geographical? or um, Geographic barriers are the beginning of the process. Mm-hmm. That is, in order to get this diversion evolution, you have to live in separate areas. Girls probably lived, sorry, chimps and girls probably lived in a further west than humans who evolved in sort of East Africa. But the kind of barriers I'm talking about are genetic barriers mm-hmm. to gene exchange, including simple dislike of mating with another species. I mean, no human in their right minds would prefer to mate with a chimp rather than another human. That's a reproductive barrier. But there's also problems with, you might live in slightly different places because you're conditioned to prefer different foods. You might mate at different times of year, which keeps different species of many marine organisms like corals and abalones apart. Or you could mate with somebody else, but your hybrids may be sterile and viable, like the horse and the donkey will mate and produce mules, which are sterile, so they can't exchange genes, really. And those are all the kinds of barriers that I study. Well, I study them in fruit flies, Drosophila, but the idea is the same. How did you become interested in this area of research? Well, it's a, a teacher, actually. I mean, in so many cases of scientists, you've turned on to a subject through a charismatic professor. Hmm. I mean, I'm hoping I'm doing it for my students, <laughs> but, but I had some really great teachers when I went to a small liberal arts college, William & Mary in Virginia, and uh, my introductory biology teacher was an evolutionary biologist and he just made it sound so exciting that you know I just knew I had to become an evolutionist and then he let me take genetics as a freshman instead of a sophomore and my genetics professor was also an evolutionary geneticist and he worked with fruit flies so of such coincidences the careers are made and I don't regret it it's been really exciting so and you've done quite a bit of work, actually, uh, talking about evolution and popularizing. Are you very surprised that this debate is still going on? It's depressing, but not surprising. Mm-hmm. American public, their acceptance of evolution, which has hovered around 40%, which is depressing enough mm-hmm. as it is, it hasn't budged in 25 years. So it doesn't look like things are changing despite all our efforts to eradicate creationism or at least keep it out of the public schools. The reason why the debate is never-ending is because religion is always there. Religion is very strong in this country, and most of the opposition to evolution comes from religious belief, from people who will never be convinced that, that they evolved or anything evolved. And as long as I think we have this sort of religious fundamentalism facing us, I don't think we're going to make a lot of progress. Right. Do you think part of that is also just failure in public schools in terms of basic science education? Yeah, although we don't have problems educating our students in physics and chemistry. I mean, it's not part of that failure is because teachers are afraid to teach evolution. Kids will object to that. They'll go home and tell their parents. You know, you just cause big problems. When I took biology in high school, it was evolution was the very last subject that they covered. It really should be the first, but it's the last. And the reason they do that is because they're hoping they don't quite get to it by the end of the quarter. And sure enough, we didn't. I had to learn on my own. But there is a certain failure in American education that is more glaring, I think, and that's the failure of teachers to teach students how to reason and how to distinguish between things that are true and things that sound true but might not be true. And we teach our students to regurgitate facts, make them define things on exams, but we're not quite as good as teaching them how to think. And that got us into the creation evolution problem. It also causes problems with global warming, where so many Americans just won't accept the evidence, problems with stem cell research, all these things. So yeah, we have been deficient, and there's a lot of room for improvement. 
I mean, so here we are, we're talking about evolution on a science show, and in a sense, it's kind of like preaching to the converted. How do you actually reach those who don't know about it? Well, I wrote my book. (laughs) That's one thing I do. I go out into the public. It's not lucrative, nor is it good for my professional advancement, but I feel sort of an obligation to do it. Go to churches, to public gatherings, to adult education. I've lectured groups of businessmen, um, high school students, grade school students, you know, all of them trying to teach people two things. First of all, that evolution happened, and it's true. That's the title of my book, but also that you don't really have to be afraid of it if you accept it. I mean, people fear that if you buy Darwinism, that all of a sudden you're going to believe that you're an animal because you evolved like an animal, and that ethics and morality will go out the window. And Coulter has said that, you know, if you accept evolution, you have a license for all kinds of immoral behavior, um, and also that you lose a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. And, and one of the things I do in the book, at least at the end, is to try to reassure people that that is not a necessary consequence of believing in evolution. Evolution is simply the story of how we got here. It doesn't tell us how to behave or where we're going to go in the future. So there's sort of two jobs to be done. People aren't going to accept evolution if there's sort of unpleasant psychological consequences of accepting it. Well, I'm curious, we're running slightly out of time, but do you have any final words on the whole story of evolution and why it's true? Well, I think that if you're a biology major, those students out there are listening, make sure you get a good education in evolution. In fact, everybody owes it to themselves to do that because it's not only something you have to have under your belt to be considered truly educated, but it's something that you're going to need when you have your own kids and you're going to fight for them to be properly educated. So I guess my last word would be in this year of Darwin year, where it's 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth, 150th of The Origin of Species, read The Origin of Species. It's the greatest work of science ever written. It's the most popular work of science ever written. And it's the one that's going to change your view of humanity and your place in nature more profoundly than anything else. So that's that's what I have to say. So. All right, very good. And after they finish reading uh, that book, they can read your new book, which, is, of course, is Why Evolution is True. And, of course, uh, Professor Cohen, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today. My course. pleasure. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Jerry Coyne discussing Why Evolution is True. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. All right, we're ready to play the game. The game is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic highly evolved or still evolving. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're highly evolved or still evolving and maybe a little reason why. Professor Coyne, you ready to play the game? Sure. Okay, here we go. Person number one, highly evolved or still evolving, the talk show host, Jerry Springer. I'm not familiar with Mr. Springer, but from what I know of him, I'd say he's certainly not highly evolved. Um, His program panders to the lowest form of humanity, so definitely still evolving and not necessarily evolving at all. Stuck in the chimpanzee stage, I'd say. Maybe regressing a bit. Yeah, regressing, in fact. (laughs) All right. uh, Well, number two is the uh, Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Um, highly evolved. He's done a tremendous amount of things for humanity. I mean, just even though he's done it as a business, it's... I mean, every academic, and those of you listening to me, have had their lives improved because of him. So certainly highly evolved, and he's still evolving. I mean, evolution never ends, really, and biologically, and I don't think mental evolution or technological evolution ever ends, but he's certainly higher up than Jerry Springer. So. <laughs> well, it's good news for Apple, then. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, number three is famed evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Oh, highly evolved, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's sort of a hero of mine, both in his outspokenness and in his ability to turn the public on to evolution. He's probably the best popular science writer we have, and I have a lot of admiration for him. He's getting a lot of flack because he's also an outspoken atheist. But I think people owe it to themselves to listen to what he has to say rather than dismiss him for being aggressive. Definitely highly evolved. Number four is uh, Wall Street huckster Bernie Madoff. Definitely not evolved enough. He's certainly acquired many of the traits that animals like, such as greed and self-acquisitiveness. He has those in ample supply. Um, He hasn't evolved, apparently, the higher moral instincts of humans, so he'd be on the lower end of the scale, probably much lower than Jerry Springer, who, (laughs) after all, is not a fraud. He's just a showman. All right, and finally, number five, it's the new president of the United States, Barack Obama. Highly evolved. I'm a big Obama supporter. He's an intelligent human being. He has a lot of compassion. He's well-educated. I think his intentions are good. Certainly highly evolved, and he's got a long way to go, as opposed to witnessing the Dashiell affair. He admitted he screwed up. There's room for progress, but I think we can all be pretty optimistic that we have a good guy in charge. All right. Well, uh, Professor Quinn, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about your new book, which, of course, is Why Evolution is True. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.